So by now, I hope you've heard the good news. The latest edition of Mindful Landlord, so Mindful Landlord 2nd Edition, is out. And, you know, I wanted to just let you know why I wrote this book a little bit. And part of it is that I feel like there are some ideas in terms of how you optimize mental performance that really help people or they anyway they've helped me on my real estate journey and part of what i wanted to do with the book is to really share some of the methodology behind optimizing your mind to be successful in real estate and then of course a more down-to-earth approach of how to run rental property for profit and peace of mind not to fall into the trap of more doors more dollars more deals so if you want to check out the book, this is really the best thing and the closest way you can have to having Terry in your corner when you make your real estate decisions. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I'm here today with Derek Dombeck. Dombeck is a longtime investor. Um, he's been in the game for quite a while, which I just looked up in his bio. And he is also the founder of a private lending company. The name of your private lending company? Best REI Funding. Thank you. And so, Derek, maybe to start out, you can just tell us a little bit about your journey that has led you to be sitting in this seat talking with me today? Well, I'll give you the shorter version of, a, of the last 18 years, but I started off like many, many people do. I, I had a construction background, so I, I didn't go on to any formal college or business class or schools. I learned School of Hard Knocks, learned as I, I go. And 2003 was when my wife, Tracy, and I had gotten into our first real estate investments. And it started off really kind of quick. I don't usually overanalyze anyways. So when, when something interesting happens, I, I'm pretty fast to act. So we had, within the first month in, in business, we did four deals. The first couple were fixer upper rental properties. I happen to live in Wisconsin. And the other two deals I did were in the state of Florida. I had met some people you know, down there and we entered into some contracts to build some new construction spec homes in Florida while we were fixing up these older properties close to home. And over the next few years, from 2003 through about 2006, we had built up a, a portfolio worth about $4 million. So what is that in Canadian, like 50 bucks? And uh, <laughs> No, no, it's like $10 million. <laughs> okay. I, I might Other have gone way. the wrong way on that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> damn conversion rates who, who can keep track but oh we um, do we do trust me <laughs> <laughs> the it didn't take a lot to convert what happened in canadian dollars or us dollars because in 2007 it, it all went bye bye the markets crashed i thought that everything we'd done was safe i thought that everything we'd done had lots of equity and margin and i was so wrong and i i think you and I talked a little bit before the show and I was interviewed on a, on a different podcast this week with a Canadian host. And it sounds like your markets are, are starting to have some, some, yeah, some turmoil. We'll call it. Yeah. I, and I lived that, but back then I didn't have a network. It was my biggest mistake in real estate. It was being a, a closet investor, not telling everybody what I really could do or wanted to do, or, you know, shout it from the rooftops. Instead, I was kind of 
just picking away. I'd buy a couple properties. And if I ever mentioned it to friends or family, they were always like, well, Derek, be careful. You know, we don't want something bad to happen, which is terrible advice because they were not business owners. Nobody in my friends or, or circle of friends in my family had ever owned a business. So for them to give you business advice is really them just looking in a mirror saying, well, if, if Derek succeeds, then it's going to make us look worse, mm-hmm. right? Because we didn't succeed. Like, and, and a lot of people, especially as they just get started in real estate, I think have that same battle. But my struggle then was the internal struggle of, of my failure. You know, my wife and I, we used banks for everything back then. We had good jobs. We had good credit. We had banks that were throwing money at us saying, you know, here you go, go ahead and buy and buy and buy. And we found out that by using banks only, we had zero control over our business. And when, not if, but when the markets shift, because it always happens, we all run in cycles, doesn't matter what country we're from, we weren't prepared for that cycle. And I, I remember somebody had told me when the pizza delivery boy is building a, a spec home in Florida, it's probably time to get out. And they literally were pizza delivery men and boys and women and girls, whatever, that could go to a bank or a mortgage broker in, in the United States and borrow money to build a $300,000, $400,000 property. That was bad, but it was too late for us. We, we didn't realize it soon enough. So on the personal side, which I don't always get into, but I'm, I'm okay with talking about it. At the same time, my wife and I were trying to grow a family and we realized we couldn't have kids naturally. So going, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people in real estate don't really want to admit that, you know, their personal life and their business life are intertwined. If you're going through something personally, your business could be going very well and and then it falters or vice versa, right? So for us to, uh, we had our, our first child, which was a, a medical procedure and, you know, in vitro fertilization. And that was in 2006. So things were still going good. But as we went through 2007 and eight and nine and trying to come up with a lot of money, these you mm-hmm. know, expensive mm-hmm. in, in a time when there wasn't a bank in the United States that would, would lend us a nickel because it just credit was shot, right? Portfolio was done. Net worth was in the toilet. So we we had about a $4 million portfolio that went to about $1 million in value in about a seven, six to 12 month period, we'll call it. Right. So what I didn't realize at that time, Terry, was that was the biggest blessing I've ever received in my life was losing damn near everything financially it it forced us to either quit or learn a better way Mm -hmm. learn how to be creative Mm -hmm. learn how to structure deals learn how to talk to people and that is what i think almost everybody's biggest mistake is is you know we all want to go out and do deals we all want to make big money most of us don't take the time to learn how to talk to people and this is a people business Mm So I learned it by force as the banks were foreclosing, taking my properties away. You know, we had to do what we could to, to work with them. But then we also had to go and still buy houses. And 
what I found was being honest was something that wasn't happening a lot in the late 2000s when the markets were crashing. Everybody was trying to blame everybody else. So there were lawsuits going on like crazy. Everybody was blaming the banking industry, appraisers, you know, attorney, closing attorneys, title companies, all these different, everybody but themselves. Like nobody wanted to look in the mirror and say, mm -hmm. I screwed up. And I remember going into a, a bank who was a local bank and had funded a lot of my local transactions and they were still willing to work with me. But I sat down with the president of the bank and my commercial loan officer and I had mapped out a, a plan on how we were going to get through what we were going through. And ultimately, they were still willing to work with me. I had to find a partner that that had a credit score that could support the loans. But they knew it was me. The, my experience was what they were still willing to work with. But the challenge with that, Terry, is it was still using banks. And I didn't really know any better until about 2010, 2011. I really started studying the alternative methods of buying property or controlling property. So here in the US, you know, we like to use options. We you know, can control property with leases. We can buy property with the existing financing staying in place and just what we call master leasing. Go and leasing a property and, and subleasing it to a, another tenant without ever owning it. Another way to do things with very little money. Right. So I started learning all that, but I also started embracing building a network across the country. So I didn't stay just in my own backyard or my own little town. And through that, I met my current business partner and his name is Jeff. Jeff had never used a bank for any real estate transaction he'd ever done. He was always raising private money and it actually to a point where he was lending some money as well because he had enough lender or enough private money where he couldn't keep their money busy. So he would, he would do a couple loans here and there. And that's what we did together. We, we started, we ramped up the number of primarily residential houses that we were buying, fixing up, reselling some we would hold and, and rent out. Uh, but we got really good at, at raising money and we didn't want our investors to go somewhere else. So we started our, this arbitrage business. Uh, we typically pay our investors 9% for the use of their money. We lend it out at 12 um, and in some cases, 13%. So we make a spread. Mm -hmm. And that has grown into what is today, several million dollars a month in loans. And in an average month can be 20, 25 loans all just honestly done by a, a former construction worker. And uh, my business partner is a self-proclaimed nerd who was in the IT profession. So anybody can do what we've done. It, it really, I would go back to learning how to talk to people first and foremost, and then just never quit. So that's the short version, Terry. <laughs> okay. Well, there's like a few really like interesting things that I want you to tell us more about. So just help me understand. So like, you know, the U.S. real estate situation starts to tank and then, you know, the, the stuff is like slowly going down the drain or quickly going down the drain. And then how exactly does that downward spiral happen? Because 
I mean, let's say you have tenants in place. And I, if I understand that you did rental properties, mm-hmm. like it, will the bank call the loan because you're underwater on it? Or like, did the tenants stop paying? And then what did that look like on the way down? So back then it was a little different than now because there are some different banking regulations that were put in place because of what happened. But back then, many of these loans were being written at or above the actual value of the real estate. Right. And then the loans were just bundled up and sold off to, you know, hedge funds and and sold off to Wall Street. Yeah. Okay. So once it it was discovered that basically this paper, these loans had nothing backing them of real value that was the the beginning of the spiral it it started to escalate very quickly because the people that that couldn't sell them then decided okay we have to get some kind of income coming in you know we built we built this house for you know some of the numbers on houses i had built in florida were three hundred thousand dollars at that time and that house would have rented for fifteen hundred dollars which is not going to pay for it, but it, it cuts the bleeding, right? Like, or it stops the bleeding. So you've got just a whole subdivision, just picture a thousand houses in a subdivision and thousand of them can't be sold at once. So 500 of them are going to now try and get tenants. And the tenants, oh, okay. the tenants that were in an existing house, they may have been, you know, paying, I don't know, $1,500 for an existing house that was 10 or 20 years old can now move into a brand new house that's never been lived in. That's twice as big as what they have for a thousand dollars. So they're leaving and they're, they're walking away from their leases, even though they have, you know, con- contractual obligations to pay the lease. Their, their response was sue me. I don't care. I'm going to go live in this really nice house. The joke was on them because that really nice house lasted for about six to 12 months and then it got foreclosed and they were kicked out. But the tenants were just jumping from property to property and driving rents down okay. because oversupply. So from that point on, it was just p- people pointing fingers at each other. Like I mentioned earlier, the lawsuits that happened were crazy. And ultimately, you know, was there blame? Yeah, of course, there were there was things that were done wrong. But the thing that that our government got out of it was we're going to blame the banks because of the the zero down loans that they were issuing. So you look at today's market and about two years ago, two to three years ago, the only way that anyone could get a zero down loan or a very low down payment loan was if you went through a government backed or a government insured loan program. So the government put these stipulations in place preventing the private banks from doing exactly what they are now doing. And the same thing is gonna happen again because people have overpaid for houses for the last two years for sure and have gotten into them with these government insured loans with zero to three and a half percent down payments. And if they have to move for any reason in the next five to 10 years, these houses are underwater. They're not going to sell for what they just paid for them. And they can't afford to, to, unless they have cash, which they don't, to you know, pay off the remainder balance of the loan over and above what the house will sell for, we're going to see a, an increase in foreclosures again. 
<laughs> I, I don't think it's going to be to the degree in the United States of what it was in 2007, 8, and 9, but it, it's definitely going to happen. <laughs> it's not interesting. Yeah. And so like, if we just, uh, you know, get back to sort of like the, the personal angle on this, because, you know, if we want to try to give our listeners something, it's like what allows people to go through tough times. And, you know, you're not the first American investor who says that that period was really a blessing in disguise for them. So first of all, tell me what helped you mentally get through it. And then how do you turn a catastrophe into a blessing? <laughs> I, I, uh, I drank and drank and drank a lot of alcohol. So I got through it that way. But seriously, I was I was brought up by my father who passed away during all that crap, which was just another kick in the head. But, you know, he raised me to never quit. He raised me to finish what you start. And I think it was his passing away from cancer at age 64 that opened my eyes to, you know, I don't want to let him down. You know, he's, he's in the grave, but I don't want to let him down. And if I quit on myself, I'm quitting on everything he taught me. And I, I'm blessed to have a loving wife who, you know, was at my side. Plenty of excuses to blame each other, which we tried not to, right? But there's there's all these things that uh, a young family. I mean, we had at that time, we had our first daughter and then we adopted our son from China. And, you know, we've got these two little babies, their mouths, you know, mouths to feed. And, and I don't know. I don't know what it is when you get pushed back up against the wall, you, you, you either curl up and die or you come out swinging and I just come out swinging. <laughs> and I mean, I like the comment before that you made also about the fact that when faced with some kind of a challenge like that, you're forced to find if you, if you decide and you make it right, you're forced to find a different way of doing things. Because I think what happens is like we crash the car and like whatever behavior we have. And like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, turning this into a bigger thing, but like it works in the real estate context as well. Like it works in the rest of life. It's like you have a certain set of behaviors and a certain set of things and they've taken you to wherever you are. And then at some point you hit a ceiling or life throws something at you and what you have isn't enough. And then you have to kind of say, okay, let me deal with some of the things that have been holding me back. And I mean, I think you hinted for you that it was kind of a network problem, but like, what's the thought process that allows you to be like, I'm going to now address whatever deficiency I have in order to build back stronger. Cause it's not just coming out swinging, right? Like it's, it's thinking like, what can I do? What skills do I need to acquire to get myself out of this trouble? You know, Well, the, the beautiful thing is Terry, once you've lived it and you've gone through the, the downturns and the, the catastrophes, as long as you don't have brain damage, you don't lose what's up here. Right? So everyone else that's starting to panic, with our American interest rates increasing. I know your interest rates have increased significantly. You know, they're all starting to panic. To me, I'm looking at, I mean, I am so damn excited about the opportunities that are, that are presenting themselves already and what's going to present itself because I've seen the end of the movie. I know what moves to make now that I had no way of knowing back then. And that's the blessing to build back bigger and stronger for me I used what, what Tracy and I went through to, to help people. So I would sit down with homeowners that were going through the same problems and I could sit across the kitchen table, look at them eyeball to eyeball and tell them, I know exactly how you feel. Here's how I know how you feel. And here's how I'm going to help you get through it. 
And that's how we built our business back up just by being real with people. Yeah. And, you know, I, I say it often enough where people that know me are probably sick of hearing it, but we're real estate problem solvers. If we solve enough of people's real estate problems, we'll make a nice profit and we'll be able to support our families. If we're out there trying to take advantage of people's misfortunes, we're going to make short-term money, but long-term we're probably going to fail. We're going to have a terrible reputation and you know, I want to be able to sleep at night and know that I did right by people. I love that. I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, and I know it's weird because I feel like people don't say that enough, you know, like that often, like authenticity and honesty and like just being upfront with people and being real, it's, <laughs> it doesn't get enough good press. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm blunt to a fault. Sometimes my wife tells me I'm a little too blunt, but I don't believe in wasting people's time and maybe they don't always like what comes out of my mouth, but it's, they're going to know where I stand. I don't, I don't hold back. So let's uh, switch the conversation a little bit. So I know you got some other projects going on aside from, you know, the, the, the private lending and the investing that you still do. Uh, I think you mentioned that you have a couple of books in the works, you run a conference, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about some of those things and you know, what, what are the messages behind them? And uh, yeah. Yeah. So I mentioned before that, that I, we really focused on building a network. So we started going to other conferences and events and, and being intentional about meeting people and then staying in touch with people. So we had um, gone on this cruise, this real estate investors cruise for seven of its eight years. And after about year five, we had grown very close to a, a number of people. So we decided to um, rent a, a nice fancy house somewhere twice a year. And there was about 17 or 18 of us and we all stay in a house together and it's a, a round table mastermind and we just help each other with our businesses. After we had done this for a little while, other people started to uh, ask us, well, how do we become a part of that? And the answer was you can't because it's an invitation only and the group is full. So that led to us um, starting another group which led to another group. So we currently have three national, you know, people from all over the United States in these mastermind groups and each group meets twice a year at a different location. And what we think is the secret sauce is the fact that when you stay in a, in a house together for four or five days, it, you know, you wake up in the morning and, and it might just be over coffee or it might be in the evening you know, sitting around a hot tub or a swimming pool or playing poker until midnight or whatever it is, but you're, you're bonding and you're having conversations outside of when we're actually in our session, our mastermind session is really from nine until five each day, but it's those side conversations. And it's, it's that, that, that caring that really comes out of it where each group is such a tight knit family. Now it, it, it'd be pretty hard to break them up. Mm -hmm. So, we were doing that. It's called the circle of trust. And from that, that conference we'd been going on for years, the, the people that hosted it, uh, we became very close with They're mentors of mine. I'm honored to call them, you know, very close friends today. They asked us to take that conference over because of their age and their health. And, you know, they, it was time. So 
that also happened to be the year of COVID, which I think you guys are in your third year of COVID now up there. No, no, it's done. It's done. Well, no. who is Terry to decide? It's I decided it was done two years ago. Flaring <laughs> back up in Canada. So it was challenging. We we ended up having to cancel that event that year. And um, but it, it's called the generations of wealth. And we call it that because that generation, you know, passed it off to us, passed off their knowledge to us. And it's designed to where we bring in about 10 to 12 speakers. It's a five day event. And we have th this is for advanced real estate strategies and networking. I mean, that's the focus. So our speakers speak from 9 a.m. until one in the afternoon. And then the whole afternoon through dinner is designed to be you go off and network, get to know the people that are there you know, really spend time with each other. And then we have these town hall sessions in the evening that are, are optional, but it, and it's more interactive. You know, we might have a topic with some case studies or something that everybody's kind of working on together. And the, the thing that I really love about it, Terry, is I encourage, I and my wife, you know, our staff, we encourage people to bring their children, specifically if they're 10 and older, and we don't charge them any extra um, their kids can sit in on the conference and it's not so that they learn these advanced strategies because they're not going to understand most of it anyways. Hell, most adults don't understand it, right? But what it's doing is the kids of the entrepreneurs are getting to meet other kids of other entrepreneurs and they're building a network in their preteen and teen years that we didn't build until we were in our 30s, 40s, 50s, some of us, right? my my soon to be 16 year old daughter actually she put on a presentation at our last conference which made me tear up a little bit which was titled how to get your kids involved in your business but she has a network of of friends from six different states at this point they actually you know they stay in touch on social media of course but they actually handwrite letters to each other which is amazing i never thought any kid would ever do that again and she's almost 16 and she's got such a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of connections that she can do anything she wants. And my other two kids are following right behind. So Generations of Wealth, uh, it's going to be in Cancun, Mexico in February of 2023. We're marketing it currently. I mean, it's it's Generations of Wealth. The website is gowvoyage.com. Love to have some Canadians there. That would be fantastic. Terry, you should come. Um, <laughs> But uh, so I'm really proud of that. You mentioned a couple books. I had never expected to be an author. Uh, and earlier this year, I, I met a very incredible man whose uh, business partner was Jim Rohn. Jim Rohn was a pretty famous author and speaker. Yeah. So Jim Rohn's business partner, Kyle Wilson, asked me to, uh, to co-author a book that he's publishing. And shortly thereafter, when after I said yes to that, um, I met a ghostwriter. And this ghostwriter said, well, why don't you write your own book? I'll ghostwrite for you, but let's let's do that. So, so I went from no author experience to currently working on two of them. And um, I'd love to give them away to your, to your listeners for free, the, the electronic version. They'll, they won't be published until hopefully the end of November, first week of December. That's the, the goal on both of them. So anybody can just shoot me an email to my personal email address, which is my first name, Derek, D-E-R-E-K, 
at bestreifunding.com. Tell me you heard me on, on Terry's uh, podcast and throw you on the list as soon as they're published. Free of charge, I'll, I'll send both of them to you. Thank you. That's very generous. Um, we're going to get all that good stuff and put it in the show notes. So we're kind of coming to the end of the time that we have. Is there any sort of golden nugget or any piece of information that you want to transmit to our audience before we tell them what the best way is to reach you? If you guys are starting to go through a downturn, I would focus heavily on finding your private capital sources and learning how to buy Canadian real estate with alternative methods. Uh, I, I've never bought anything in Canada, so I, I don't know how many of these different strategies that I do here would would correlate across. Interestingly enough, the other podcast I was on this week with the gentleman from Ottawa, he started telling me about your bank financing for um, a typical homeowner. And from what he described, you don't get fixed rate financing for long periods of time. Is that sound about right? Five years. It's typically the, the longest you can fix it for is five years. There are 10 year mortgages, but the rate is way higher. So the typical time period okay. is five years. Yeah. And, and that was interesting because as soon as he told me that, my the wheels started turning. I'm like, okay, what would I do in these situations, right? But I would look at that if if somebody just took out a, a five-year loan and, and they've been paying on it for a year, you've got a window of, of about three years, not four, but about three years to go and buy that property or control that property using a lease and using, you know, for us in the United States, it's an option contract giving us the, the right to buy it at a future date for a predetermined amount of money. But if you can go and, and you find a distressed homeowner that's already distressed today, and you can take that property over, take its payments over, lease it, and then lease it out to tenants and cash flow it, it's a, it's a great model. We like to control property. We don't always buy it. So, it's not uncommon for me to, to absolutely just lease it and, and put the option in place and put some work into it, fix it up some and go and find a buyer for it. And ultimately, because I don't own it yet, the current owner will sell it direct to mm -hmm. my buyer and I get paid to uh, facilitate it. I, I feel like you, you all have a lot of opportunity coming your way from what I <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean i think it's it's also just this moment of uh, pivoting the way you do business right because like mm -hmm. real estate cycles and this is what's so fascinating is like real estate cycles are usually quite long i mean typically historically it's something like 19 years so basically we're working in an environment where nobody has seen a serious downturn at least in canada we haven't seen a, like a real crash and so everybody's always been our entire careers have been on this like kind of upward trajectory and now it's like okay well let's reevaluate what are the strategies when different things are happening and i think as you as you say it's time to start looking around and maybe having american guests is going to become increasingly relevant <laughs> <laughs> fantastic yeah what is just for my own curiosity and, and tell me to shut up if we're over time but what is your median average price points where you are and how much have they gone up in the last few years yeah. So with COVID, I mean, I think uh, our markets, some of them almost doubled, like the single family home markets went crazy. And I mean, we live in Montreal, which is more like New York. So it's a pretty dense city. And like 
there's not that many single family homes. That's more like kind of a country thing. Investors here typically buy uh, anywhere from like a duplex up to, you know, I do more like multifamilies. And then obviously there's people who do like 50 unit things, right? Um, and the investment properties also went up, but it was more of like a game with the multiples of revenue because like properties get sold as a function of the multiples of revenue and like with low interest rates that went up. And so it's kind of like not exactly the same game in multifamily as it was single family. But I think for sure, like, and, and, you know, 30 to 40% of Canadian mortgages are variable rate, like homeowner mortgages. And so it means that like, if those people were stretched because the market was so high, like they're going to be very, very stretched because they're now getting letters in the bank every month that says, no, your payment went up by $300. No, your payment went up by $400. No, your payment went up by $500. And so like, that's going to, a lot of people are going to have to start unloading those things because they're not going to be able to take the, the interest rate increases. But how are they going to unload them when the property values are, are going to go down? No, well, they're going to have to unload them at a discount, right? And like the thing is, because we capitalize, like we're more capitalized in our properties, the minimum down payment is 5%. And the, a conventional loan is 20%. So basically they're building in the fact that the market can drop 20%. And like, is it going to drop 20%? Well, I, I don't think it will drop that much, but like it could drop 20% and then people will just lose their down payments. And then the bank forecloses on the house and sells it for 80 cents on the dollar. How, what, how long does the foreclosure process take where you are? A while. I mean, they get like a 60 day notice and then it goes to the lawyers and then da da da. Like, in Canada, I think one in 900 houses forecloses. In the U.S., it's one in 20. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, anyway. <laughs> you might see an increase in that, though, Terry. You might. Right? I hope you don't catch up to us, but you may. Yeah. You may definitely a little, yeah. see it. <laughs> well, I would okay. love for, for you to stay in touch with me, too, uh, as, yep. as, as that progresses, because curiosity for me, but any, any way I can help, I'd love to. And any of your listeners anything that they want to reach out to me about use the same email address as you know getting on the book uh derek at bestreifunding.com and uh, as i said anybody that wants to get out of the cold in february 2023 come to cancun we'd love to have you i'm getting out of the cold it's just as cold in wisconsin as it is where you're at. <laughs> all right well thank you derek for spending this time with me and uh, we'll drop all your links in the show notes Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.